Picture this. You're a pediatrician. It's a normal day at the clinic. One of your patient's mom calls the office to make a same-day appointment for her seven-year-old son because his throat has been hurting since yesterday. Your patient arrives, you ask a few questions, and then reach for your tongue depressor and ask your patient to open his mouth. After your oral exam, your young patient asks you what you're looking for in his mouth. Hi and welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Alex Dennis, and this is the break on acute inflammation. Let's jump in. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. Describe the three roles of inflammation. 2. Identify the cells of innate immunity involved in acute inflammation and the timeline of when each shell type is involved. 3. Describe the four reactions of blood vessels in acute inflammation. 4. Describe leukocyte recruitment to sites of inflammation. 5. Explain how these processes result in the general clinical manifestations of acute inflammation. 6. Provide specific examples of acute inflammation. And 7. Describe the utility of acute phase reactants as a marker of inflammation, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein, ferritin, fibrinogen, all increase with inflammation, which means they're positive markers. We've all caught our fingers, bumped our heads, and fallen and scraped our knees. And right as we were cursing our clumsiness or bad luck, our body got straight to work healing the injury, relying on the wondrous process of acute inflammation. Shortly after an injury, you most likely experience some or all of the cardinal signs of acute inflammation. Pain, redness, heat, and swelling. That's dolor, rubor, calor, and tumor, respectively in Latin, which you hear about because they were first described by a Roman medical writer. There are two types of inflammation, acute and chronic. Acute inflammation is an essential part of the body's defense system and generally lasts a few days. Chronic inflammation, which is for another episode, involves an ongoing low-level inflammation that lasts for weeks, months, or even years. Unlike acute inflammation, chronic inflammation is not generally beneficial. It leads to tissue damage and is linked to the development of many types of chronic disease, including diabetes, cancer, and a range of autoimmune disorders. Part 1. What are the three major roles of acute inflammation? The first role of inflammation is to recruit help in response to infection or injury. This help arrives via the delivery of effector molecules and cells to the site of injury. These molecules and cells specialize in tissue repair and clearing of foreign pathogens. Some effector molecules and cells carry out the second role, causing blood to clot at the site of injury. This halts the flow of blood out of the injured area, provides a framework for tissue repair, and creates a physical barrier that contains the spread of infection. The third role of inflammation is promoting repair of injured tissue. Time for our first question. What are the three major roles of acute inflammation? The three major roles of acute inflammation are to deliver effector molecules and cells to the site of injury or infection, to cause blood to clot at the site of injury, and to promote tissue repair. Part 2. Which cells are involved in acute inflammation? The main cells involved in acute inflammation are neutrophils and macrophages. Neutrophils and macrophages. If you've been listening to our podcast, You'll remember these were stars of our Immunology Foundations and Framework episode. 
Both of these cells are key players in innate immunity, which is consistent with the acute nature of the inflammation we're tackling. The first cells to arrive on the scene, the paramedics of acute inflammation, are the neutrophils. Neutrophils are the most abundant white blood cells in the blood, representing about 60% of the total white blood cell count. They are classified as granulocytes because of the presence of specific densely staining granules in their cytoplasm. Neutrophils kill microorganisms using phagocytosis, which is a fancy term for engulfing and ingesting bugs, and by releasing antimicrobial proteins. Neutrophil response peaks about 24 hours after injury or infection. Macrophages are leukocytes found throughout the body tissues. Their main function is to kill microorganisms and eliminate cellular debris via phagocytosis. Macrophages become the predominant cell type at the site of inflammation approximately 48 to 72 hours or 2 to 3 days after injury or infection. Macrophages contribute to acute inflammation by secreting cytokines, which are proteins that trigger actions of other cells involved in the immune response. In addition, macrophages are one of several immune cells classified as antigen-presenting cells, abbreviated APCs. Antigen-presenting cells take up antigens via phagocytosis and process them in a way that will allow them to show the antigens to T and B cells, just like mama birds pre-chew the food for their chicks. So, APCs are especially important if the cause of inflammation is infectious, because they're the cells that help T and B lymphocytes mount an adaptive immune response if a microbe or foreign particle, and therefore its antigen, is present. The cells involved in acute inflammation play a secondary role in tissue repair. The acute inflammatory response is part of a longer cascade of responses that recruit repair cells that work to heal damaged tissue. Let's break for a question. Which type of immune system cell is the first to arrive at the site of injury or infection? Neutrophils are the first cells to arrive at the site of injury or infection. Part 3. How do blood vessels react to acute inflammation? Blood vessels are lined with endothelial cells that form a tightly sealed network of tubes throughout the body. These vessels react within seconds to acute tissue injury. The very first thing the vessels do in response to acute injury is constrict. This lasts for one or two seconds and is likely a smooth muscular shock response, sort of like a gut response. On injury, the first molecular mediators of acute inflammation prompt blood vessels to engage in four key responses, the goal being to get the good cells at the site of injury and to prevent the bad cells from disseminating throughout the body. The first response after the brief contraction is actually to increase vascular diameter. There's endothelial cell relaxation, which expands the vessel diameter to increase blood flow to the injured area. Then there's expression of cell adhesion molecules. As the endothelial cells relax, they start to express sticky molecules known as selectins and cellular adhesion molecules, CAMS for short. These work to slow down leukocytes and help them locate and migrate towards the site of injury or infection. Basically, they act like Velcro. So now the cells can stick, so they need to make their way out of the blood into the tissue. For that, our third key response is increased vascular permeability. In response to inflammatory stimuli, the endothelial cell junctions break down, and the tightly sealed vessel walls become increasingly permeable to specialized cells and molecules. This helps the immune cells get to the site of injury more rapidly. 
Now that we have the good cells in, we need to close off exit routes. So our last key response is clotting in microvessels. The vascular network is specifically designed for transport and pathogens sometimes attempt to hitch a ride to spread infection to another part of the body. For this reason, microvessels surrounding the site of infection initiate the formation of clots, essentially locking the door so infection cannot spread. Alright, you probably already see this question coming. After an acute injury, the gut reaction of blood vessels is to contract for one or two seconds. What are four key events that happen after? The blood vessel dilates, expresses selectins and CAMs, and becomes permeable to allow passage of white blood cells. After that, there's blocking off the exit of pathogens via clotting in microvessels. Part 4. How do white blood cells migrate to the site of injury or infection? Leukocytes that respond to tissue injury or pathogen infection are far too large to diffuse through the endothelial cell layer that lines our blood vessels. And that's a good thing, otherwise they'd always be getting pushed out into the tissue. Extravasation is the escape or passage of blood or other fluid from a vessel into surrounding tissue. This process enables white blood cells to get through the endothelial cell barrier and access damaged tissue. Leukocyte extravasation involves four steps. Margination and rolling, binding, diapodesis, and migration. Fancy words, easy concept. As we're going through these steps, try to visualize the immune cells as they go from free-floating pretty fast in the blood, to moving towards the edge of the vessel, to slowing down, to stopping and firmly binding, to finally squeezing out of the vessel. Recall that blood vessels dilate to increase the blood volume and total flow reaching the injured tissue. Although total flow and blood volume is increased via vasodilation, the actual fluid and the components within it move more slowly, because dilation wins over increased flow, so things move slower. This decrease in the speed of blood flow allows free-flowing leukocytes to come into close contact with the vessel wall in a process known as margination. The blood vessel walls respond by covering themselves in speed bumps known as selectins. S in speed bump for selectin. Selectins are glycoproteins involved in adhering circulating cells to the endothelial layer. The two main selectins expressed on the vessel surface are E-selectin and P-selectin. These selectins interact with a protein on the white blood cell surface called Sialo-Lewis X. The interaction of Sialo-Lewis X and selectins tethers the cell to the endothelium, causing it to travel along the surface of the vascular endothelium, a process known as rolling. Without this process, cells are moving too fast to allow for a good grip. Once the selectins successfully stop the leukocyte, they activate a special type of adhesive to fix it firmly in place. These intercellular adhesion molecules known as integrins, including ICAM1 and VCAM1, attach to transmembrane proteins CD11-CD18 integrins located on white blood cells, effectively binding the cell to the vessel wall. In fact, there's a variety of types of diseases that ensue from defective integrins because white blood cells of those afflicted cannot complete the binding step of extravasation. We've covered quite a bit. Let's see what you got from this. What molecules does the endothelial layer of blood vessels express to allow for margination and rolling of white blood cells? Those would be selectins, the speed bumps. These are distinct from integrins, 
which mediate a tighter binding once the white blood cells have actually slowed down. There's a third type of cell adhesion molecule known as PCAM1, but this one's special for a few reasons. It's found on both the leukocyte surface and at the junction between endothelial cells, so it binds to itself really. And the other thing is that now it's mediating more than just adhesion, it's taking it one step further and mediating diapedesis. In this step, the endothelial cell junction is pulled apart, allowing the leukocyte to slip through the opening and enter the interstitium. Simply getting through the endothelial cell wall into the interstitium is not enough. The leukocyte must also locate and move towards the site of injury once it exits the circulation. This migration process is facilitated by chemokines, which are chemical signals the leukocyte follows to reach its final destination. The binding of chemokines to receptors on the white blood cell surface promotes directional movement of the chemokine's concentration gradient, and that's chemotaxis, towards the site of injury. So that covers it for leukocyte extravasation. Can you remember the four steps of this process? There's margination and rolling, binding, diapedesis, and migration. These are the four steps of leukocyte extravasation. Part 5. What are the cardinal signs of acute inflammation? Now that we have discussed the mechanisms behind acute inflammation, it becomes easier to understand common clinical manifestations. Redness and heat are caused by increases in local blood flow, while swelling occurs as the vasculature becomes increasingly permeable to fluid or proteins. Boom, three down, two to go. Fluid accumulation in the interstitial space causes visible enlargement of the tissue. The perception of pain results from the peripheral nervous response to physical stimuli, such as pressure due to swelling, or chemical stimuli, inflammatory cytokines from pathogens or damaged tissue would cause that. And finally, the pain and or swelling can cause loss of function because you're not able to use the damaged area as much, and that's the fifth sign, but it's sometimes omitted. Part 6. What are some examples of acute inflammation? If a patient visits her physician complaining of sore throat, or like a pharyngitis, the first thing the doctor does is reach for a tongue depressor. Why is this? The physician is looking for the cardinal signs of acute inflammation. And if you've had a pharyngitis, you know what that looks like, right? It's all red and swollen in the back of your mouth, sometimes with petechiae or a rash around the area. Even the dangling uvula might be swollen. Shifting gears a bit now, another thing that becomes important when evaluating acute inflammation is to understand which type of fluid is leaking out of the blood vessels because this can indicate the underlying cause of the inflammation. This fluid can be an exudate or a transudate. An exudate contains protein and cellular elements. It arises due to inflammatory factors that lead to increased vascular permeability, allowing neutrophils to enter the tissue. The buildup of leukocytes contributes to pus formation, causing purulent inflammation. Purulent means containing or composed of pus. For example, bacterial infection of the lung often results in massive neutrophilic response. In bacterial pneumonia, pus builds up within the alveolar spaces and reduces the area available for gas exchange, impairing respiratory function. Now, think about what this might look like on an x-ray. Picture a normal lung chest x-ray, okay? Now, white out the right lower lobe. That's called right lower lobe consolidation. And let me ask you this. What type of structures appear white on an x-ray? 
On an X-ray, dense structures such as bone are white and fluids are shades of gray. So if a part of the lung appears white on X-ray, that means it's filled with liquid, i.e. all the alveolar balloons of that lobe are filled with liquid. Then, the opaque areas would be consistent with alveolar infiltrate and would indicate bacterial pneumonia. That's because in the case of bacterial pneumonia, there's a big local immune effort to fight off the bug. Of course, additional tests and a complete medical history would be required to confirm the diagnosis. A transudate, on the other hand, is a fluid that passes through a membrane that filters out many of the solid components, so it's more watery than an exudate. We're not dealing with this increased permeability that allows all the cells to go through. Transudates arise due to an imbalance in the hydrostatic pressure that forces fluid out of the circulation and the oncotic pressure that pulls fluid back into the vasculature. Transudates occur in serous inflammation, which is characteristic of systemic diseases that may affect these forces. For example, congestive heart failure causes increased hydrostatic pressure in the vessels of the lung because of the inability of the heart to circulate blood effectively, leading to transudative leak. Part 7. Which laboratory tests are used to detect inflammation? Inflammation in the body can be detected via tests that look for products released during an inflammatory response known as acute phase reactants, also called acute phase proteins. These proteins can be measured in the blood or in the serum. Some of these proteins increase when inflammation is present and some decrease. Accordingly, they're called positive acute phase reactants and negative acute phase reactants, respectively. Let's talk about positive acute phase reactants first. They include C-reactive protein, abbreviated CRP, which helps the body recognize and eliminate invading pathogens. Fibrinogen, which aids in tissue repair and influences endothelial cell adhesion and proliferation. Serum amyloid A, which is produced by the liver and has several functions related to attenuating the acute inflammatory response. They also include proteins which help hide iron, because we want to keep the bugs from getting strong off of our iron. These proteins include ferritin, which is a molecule that stores iron in our cells. During inflammation, the serum ferritin level often increases. And hepcidin, which is a molecule that acts as a gatekeeper for iron stored in macrophages and some other cells. Same deal as before, hide the iron. A measurable increase in positive acute phase reactant increases the likelihood that inflammation is underway within the body. Acute phase reactants are not specific to any particular disease or injury, but increased levels can indicate the need for further investigation. Let's pause for a question. Which positive acute phase reactants decrease free iron? Ferritin and hepcidin are acute phase reactants that increase in the body in an inflammatory state and effectively hide iron. Now, let's discuss two negative acute phase reactants. Albumin is the primary protein in the blood plasma that maintains plasma oncotic pressure in acute inflammation. A lower amount is produced to conserve amino acids, or building blocks, for the positive acute phase reactants we just talked about. And then transferrin is a molecule found in plasma that is responsible for transporting iron within the blood. Levels decrease during acute inflammation due to internalization by macrophages. It should come as no surprise then that prolonged states of increased ferritin and hepcidin, along with decreased levels of transferrin, 
can lead to iron deficiency. However, the changes in serum levels of these three proteins in response to acute inflammation are all working towards the same goal of sequestering iron inside of our cells. This reaction occurs because iron is an important component of microbial metabolism, so our body hides iron during inflammation just in case the inflammation is due to an infectious cause. Now, an indirect method used to measure acute phase reactants is the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, abbreviated ESR. Red blood cells are studded with negatively charged surface proteins, causing the cells to repel each other. Pro-sedimentation factors such as fibrinogen disrupt the negative charges and allow red blood cells to stick together in stacks like poker chips. The ESR test measures the fall rate, so the sedimentation rate, of a blood sample placed into a tall, thin tube. It is measured in millimeters per hour, and normal values are 0 to 15 for male patients and 0 to 20 for female patients. These stacks of red blood cells, called rouleaux, cause the blood to settle at a faster rate due to increased levels of acute phase proteins, most importantly fibrinogen. Although the ESR test is again not disease-specific, it can detect active inflammation due to cancer and infectious and autoimmune diseases. Another limitation of ESR is that it generally will not be elevated even in the setting of an acute inflammation until 24 to 48 hours after the initial injury or infection. Clinically, the most important and most rapidly seen marker of acute inflammation is increased C-reactive protein. ESR is considered useful and correlates most reliably to levels of fibrinogen, although this elevation occurs more slowly than changes in CRP. That's it for the content on this break. Let's see what you got from this. What are the three roles of inflammation? The three roles of inflammation are to deliver effector molecules, induce local clotting, and to promote tissue repair. What are the two important cells in acute inflammation, and what is their timeline of involvement? Neutrophils are the first immune cells to arrive at the site of injury or infection. Neutrophil response peaks about 24 hours after injury or infection, macrophages arrive later, and peak at about 48 to 72 hours. What are the four steps in the process that allows white blood cells to migrate out of the blood into the inflamed tissue? Leukocyte extravasation is a process that allows white blood cells to exit the blood vessels and migrate to the site of injury or infection. This process involves four steps, margination and rolling, binding, diapedesis, and migration. What cardinal signs of inflammation are explained by increased blood flow to the inflamed area? The cardinal signs of acute inflammation are pain, dolor, redness, rubor, heat, calor, and swelling, tumor. Redness and heat are because of the increased blood flow, swelling because of the permeability of those blood vessels. How does an exudate appear different from a transudate? Exudate is fluid that collects within tissues because of local inflammatory factors that lead to leukocyte extravasation and pus formation, so it's thick and purulent. Transudate is fluid pushed through the endothelial cells of vessel walls because of force imbalance in hydrostatic or oncotic pressure. 
This results in serous inflammation. Its composition is similar to that of serum, so it looks more watery. What are some clinically useful categories of markers of inflammation? There's acute phase reactants, which are proteins such as CRP, fibrinogen, serum amyloid A, ferritin, and hepcidin that can be measured in the blood or serum as indicators of inflammation. Then there's also the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR test, which is used to detect inflammation that may indicate cancer or the presence of infectious or autoimmune disease. Armed with your newfound knowledge, think back to your seven-year-old patient with a sore throat. How will you explain to him the purpose of the oral exam? You tell him you're happy he asks, and explain that based on how his throat has been hurting, you suspect he might have a bacterial infection. And if that's the case, then his body is fighting back by bringing its best resources, the white blood cells, at the back of the throat where the infection is. This process is called inflammation, and turns out, you can tell that that's happening if you notice that the back of his mouth is redder or more swollen than usual. You confirm that indeed you were able to see some of these findings and proceed to explain to both your patient and his mom the next steps in confirming the diagnosis and treating the patient. That's all I got on acute inflammation. Hope you enjoyed. Make sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. Your feedback continuously helps us improve. You can also get the full RxBricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com. Catch you on the next one.